1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Toby,
2: And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is TalkArt. Welcome to TalkArt. How are you, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling happy to be alive because I feel like so grateful today. Um, I've just been thinking a lot about artists and how lucky we are that even though we're living in a time of incredible turmoil and disruption and injustice and um, struggle on so many levels, it seems to be a perpetual kind of... Struggle in humanity. I do feel like, thank God, we we have artists, and and mm-hmm. in the past year, um, you and I have got to meet one of the most incredible artists who we are going to be speaking to today. And we had the great privilege of um, presenting her work in your group show recently in Margate in Breakfast Under the Tree. Mm-hmm. And um, I hadn't actually never met her before, and then she came down to Margate, and we completely like kind of fell in love with each other, um, <laughs> just as friends, but obviously. But I just completely love her. And, And I love her work um, initially and she's known uh, first and foremost for the most incredibly meticulous detailed um, pencil drawings which become these really kind of life-size portraits of a herself but also um, figures from history and um, her own kind of family history and there's this kind of sense of connectedness to the past and the the impact the past has had on the present and I've also been feeling today a bit like a herbalist because I've been hearing all about the brand new show, which is in London right now. And this exhibition is called The Seed Keepers and it's at Tiwani Contemporary and um, there's a whole theme within it of kind of looking back at the botanical studies of the 18th and 19th century, and I love all these ideas within herbalism of like community and kind of um, the way that it might not necessarily be based on like academic or kind of institutional training, but mm. that but that it can be communal and familial and this idea of like healing, and for me healing through art is such a massive kind of um, drive and life force. So I am very excited for everyone to meet this artist. We would like to welcome. Welcome to Talk
3: Art. Charmaine
2: Watkins. Hi,
1: Charmaine. <laughs> Hello. So nice to hear your voice. Hello. Nice to you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, thanks for inviting me on the show. Of course.
3: Oh, my God. Where are you, Charmaine? Where in the world are you?
1: Uh, I'm in London. I live south, south London. Oh, south really? London yeah.
3: So, as Rob was yeah. saying, you've just opened your first solo with your gallery, which as Rob said, it's called The Seed Keepers and it's yeah. on till the 5th December and it's at Tuani Contemporary, which is Cromwell Place in SW7. Yes,
1: yes that's right. Uh, yes, it's yeah, it's been uh, quite a week. Uh, so, yes, the show opened a couple of days ago and I'm still recovering, really. Uh, I mean, I'm just overwhelmed by how many people came to the show to support on the first day. Um uh so yes, I'm 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 just really happy right now. Yes.
3: Why why would you say quite a week? What has been the kind of high <laughs> points, low points, the points
1: that have surprised you? Uh well, gosh. Um I suppose the people that came, because um it opened on Tuesday and it was an all day opening, so um People started arriving at ten thirty in the morning. Oh, wow. I, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, and then two women um, independently travelled all the way from Birmingham oh to come God. and see the show, and I'd never met them before. Uh, they messaged me on Instagram and said that they wanted to come down, and so you know things like that are really it's really touching. Yeah. So so yeah. So that
3: your work is connecting to them. They didn't turn up at ten in the morning though, did they? That that was. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, one of them came quite early. Right. I think she came before lunch. Wow. yes. she, she was on a peak Coke time car. train to Love see you. Her. That's a proper commitment. <laughs> you know, Charmaine,
2: I must just say though, like when we had your work in Margate, we had three of your works. Um, one was in our viewing room, and the other two were actually in the exhibition space. We literally had crowds of people around your work because there was like so much detail and so kind of like meticulous like attention to, to, to the kind of features and the clothes and and just all these kind of beautiful details within the people that you you're presenting in the work. Can you speak a bit about how that began for you? Like your your passion for drawing and making work with pencils? Uh,
1: uh well, I I suppose I've always engaged with drawing, um, because I initially come from a design background, but must have been about two thousand and seven. 2008 I decided that I really wanted to learn how to draw the fair well and um, so I started to take evening classes and uh, I did a lot of courses at the Royal Drawing School Um, but it just never occurred to me that I would actually draw for a living but it was just something that I felt that I really wanted to do and then must have been around the end of 2013 i decided to do a part-time foundation course at city lit and um through that course i actually created my first life-size drawing and i did that because i actually picked um painting and sculpture as my pathways but i had a disastrous third term in both. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I've got to make work for this end of year show. And everyone was telling me how good my drawings were. So Why disastrous? (laughs) What what was a disaster? (laughs) I suppose, I mean, looking back now, I realised that I couldn't say what I wanted to say at the time with painting or with sculpture because I've always been interested in kind of Um, themes around ancestry and um, I didn't have the language to articulate what I wanted to say at that time. So um, what I did was I um, undertook some research around where I live. I live in Bermondsey, South London, and um, I live near Jamaica Road and I wanted to know why Jamaica Road was called Jamaica Road. So I did all of this research in my local history library and I discovered that the borough that I lived in had um, quite strong connections with the transatlantic slave trade. So I lived near, um, not far from Shad Thames, so all along the docks, along the river is where they um, brought in sugar and tobacco from the plantations. Mm. So I also did some research at the Museum of London Docklands and there's um, a permanent um, exhibition in there, London Sugar and Slavery. So that gave me a lot more information that I needed. But I then thought, what am I going to do with all this information? And I was very close to a few people on my foundation course. And uh, when we had our little crypt group meeting one of them said, oh, you know, why don't you do a self-portrait? Because I was talking about how, um, you know, all of these connections with Jamaica, Jamaica Road. There used to be a Jamaica tavern in Bermondsey, which was knocked down in um, the mid-1950s. And that tavern was frequented by people like Samuel Pepys. And then... Oh, wow. um, was it in his diaries? Yeah, it it might have been in his diaries, actually. Wow. Um, But yes, it was um, one of these places that a lot of society people used to go and hang out. And um, also my mum's side of the family um, come from um, St. Thomas in the Blue Mountains in Jamaica. They were coffee growers. I think some members of my, distant members of my family that I've never met still grow coffee. And the fact that there were a lot of coffee houses around Thule Street. So I kind of made all these... Uh. Connections with my family history, but with also a wider history. Mm. So, when someone suggested why don't I do a self portrait, I thought I could draw myself, um, but I didn't know how I was going to tackle it. And I had to take time off from my foundation, do a freelance gig. And it was while I was doing this freelance gig that the idea started to formulate. And I thought maybe I could map some, do some kind of a map on clothing to do with people, places. So the idea slowly developed and then I thought, I'm going to challenge myself by doing something life-sized because up until that point, I'd never drawn anything larger than A3 before. So that's how these kind of life-size works started. And I suppose, I don't actually see them as self-portraits, but I always kind of... um, find a subject that kind of connects to me Mm -hmm. somehow, but also have um, a wider um, cultural context. Mm. So I kind of speak about collective experiences. Right. So that's why I don't really see them as self-portraits, if that makes sense.
3: So when, when you're talking about the scale, what, why did you feel like you needed to do life-size? That was the challenge you needed to tell the story you needed to yeah,
1: tell? Yeah, um, I just wanted to challenge myself. I always, <laughs> I never pick an easy route when I do anything. And uh, I was petrified at the, at the prospect of doing something that size. But I just thought I just need to challenge myself. So that was the initial impetus. It was purely because I'd never done it before. So I thought this is be a so place. so
3: when you said it was a disastrous third year it's because you'd been studying sculpture and painting and you realized in that moment you wanted to be drawing.
1: Yes, I did. Yeah, I did realize that I I wanted to be drawing and it felt it felt right. When I when I thought about that decision, I thought yes, this this decision feels right for me. And when I actually worked on the drawing um That was it. I I didn't realize that I would then go on to kind of just keep creating bodies of work, you know, on this scale. Um, but it just felt right in that moment to do that. And
2: you were talking earlier on about the idea of fabric and, and how you realised the body um, beyond just the face, which is obviously your face um, recurring um, in these portraits, mm. but that you could sort of, uh, you know, have messages within, within the clothing and within the, the patterns and the fabric. And there was a work yeah. which you showed in Margate called Facing the Wind, which you made actually this, this year in 2021, um, mm. which, which had a number of different kind of messages like hidden within the work. And what I love about yes. it is that it really is it's kind of explicit because it, it's obviously within the work. But the more you look at it things reveal themselves. Can you speak a bit mm. about that particular work facing the wind?
1: Yes, I made that work um as a response to um the windrush scandal. So I don't know if uh, people on you know other parts of the world are aware of but um uh, the Windrush generation are—it's um, a title of people. My parents' generation who came to um, Britain to live and work in in the nineteen sixties, fifties, and sixties. And um, so many of that generation. Some of them came with very, very young children. And so some of those children. Um, are the ones that are caught up in the Windrush scandal. So many of them are kind of in their mid-50s and and older. So some of them, you know, they came here as babies on their parents' passport. And um, a few years ago, the government decided to um, implement this um, kind of hostile environment policy to try and uh, reduce immigration so they got caught up in that there was a lot of paperwork that was destroyed and so people who had gone to school in this country and had worked all their lives in this country were suddenly seen as illegal immigrants and um, even though they had documentation to say you know that they perhaps bought this property bought a property or they've got school photographs um to say you know they went to primary school here and everything um you know, there was a particular document that they had to provide, which was um amongst the documents that had been mm-hmm. destroyed. So um then what happened was that um there seemed to have been um, some resolution where they, they you know the government then realized that um you know that they've done this injustice and that people are able to be compensated. But that situation still hasn't resolved and so at the time that I started that work, nine people had died without having received compensation. And I was really upset about that because, you know, I think of how hard my mum worked in her generation. And um, you know, if my mum were alive, you know, maybe she could have been one of these people yeah. caught up in the scandal. So it really affected me. So I, I felt that I needed to talk about it in this work and so um, on the clothing um, I kind of mapped um, there's a there's a bit across the skirt the top of the skirt and um, it's like a detail from um, the Yarlswood detention center I kind of put that on there
3: what's that where's that and what is that
1: Uh, It's a detention centre where people were held and they were held there um, to await deportation and some people were successfully deported and were never allowed back and um, so it's not a nice place it's got barbed Mm -hmm. wires and everything Mm -hmm. on the outside Um, so yes, many people spent many months um, in that place and were threatened with deportation weekly so Um, So I put that in the drawing. Um, Also, I decided to kind of um, play with archetypes. So one of the characters, she's got her back to the audience and her hand on her hip. I took her from an earlier work that I'd made um, called They Didn't Come to Stay. And that was my first work that I'd made about um, my parents' generation, because when I made that work in 2017, um, I think it was 2016, 2017, at that time I didn't feel that there was enough being said about um, my parents' generation's contribution Mm -hmm. to this country. And then after I made that work, I think it was about eight, nine months after I made that work, then the Windrush scandal broke. So I used one of the characters from that in this work and then there's another, the second character, um, who you see in profile, um, she has these keys in her hands. It's, I kind of played, um, I decided to make her into a, a figure, kind of a tarot figure the justice archetype. So she's holding, uh, these keys and this padlock and it's kind of, I drew it as if mm-hmm. it's on a scale, um. And so, on one side of the scale is this padlock, and then on the other side is nine mm. keys. And um, but if you look closely, the padlock, um, the, the lock itself, can never be opened. So um, so that kind of comments on the fact that you know these people have been trying to get justice and have died without that. And then on her on her boot, um, there's the insignia, insignia of. Um, home office itself um so so yes i kind of um i kind of weave these kind of layers of of narrative um into clothing and that 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 way of kind of telling a story through clothing is something that i started with the very very first life-size drawing that i did uh, because clothing is very important um to my parents' generation and also it seems to be a colonial thing because I was speaking to a friend of mine whose family um, are from Sri Lanka and we were talking about how important Mm -hmm. dress is, you know, to people that were born on the colonies and this whole idea of, you know, presenting yourself well, you know, um, even if you don't have much, but, you, you know, there is this need to kind of really present yourself well. And so um, I think to have stories told through clothing, something that you can remove um, is interesting because also as a person of colour, you can't remove your identity, you can't remove your colour, but you Mm -hmm. can remove your clothing. And so, um, you know, there is this thing about... um, people projecting otherness onto you so it's kind of you know these are the kind of ideas that I'm exploring Mm. through the work you refer to them as as
3: characters but as as rob was saying they they do start off as a self-portrait but you see this self-portrait of yourself and people i'm seeing you now when i saw you at the show and i'd never met you in person i was like oh Charmaine, i know exactly who you are because i've seen you in in the work (laughs) but they are you but you also say that they're they're a vehicle or or like a vessel or a conduit for storytelling but you always start from yourself and then yeah
1: yes but I don't see them as me because uh, there's this performative aspect that I have when I'm actually making the reference images. So I work from photographs and I grid them up uh, and enlarge them. Oh, so you'll form these poses um, and stuff but,
3: like what we're seeing, right? Yes,
1: I do. Yeah, yeah. So I there's a camera, there's a timer on there, and um, so I I actually kind of get wow, into I didn't character. Know that. So even when I look at these pictures, yeah, when I look at these pictures, they're not me. And certainly once I've gridded and put them on the paper, Mm. they're definitely not me anymore. And then I don't actually work from one photograph. I work from photos that are taken at different angles. So I could even be drawing from, um, like, a profiled view of myself, but that the person might be looking in a different direction because when I'm drawing it's, I kind of approach it the same way as if there's a person in front of me. So, um, so I treat, I treat each of the drawings as kind of individuals. And so I, I kind of ask the same questions as I would if I had a person in front of me. I'm looking at the form I'm asking, you know, what is happening here at the draw line. I, you know, so um, anatomy kind of um Bo- is body important lang- as well. Body
3: language is incredibly important, but also...
1: Yes, body language is important. So a part of that is uh, I kind of make a statement through yeah. the, the poses as well. Yeah, yeah. the figure, yeah. Yeah, but
3: also what I've always found really... Uh, engaging is that the gaze is always averted you're you, yes. we're never looked at directly in the eye it's yeah. always off it's always looking down it's always looking away yes what what does that language give you for this
1: i think uh it allows the viewer to really come close and look at the figure there is that it also creates um and otherworldliness, you you kind of wonder what it's is this character thinking? Yeah. Where are they looking? Yes, there is this interiority. And I think when I observe people looking at the work and engaging with the work, they slow down because I can see that they're actually having this, their own internal dialogue mm. with the work because they are wondering where is this person looking what are they looking at you know what are they thinking those kind of questions do go through the viewer's mind
3: yeah but i'm always thinking what what is the emotion that this person mm. is feeling because we're looking at the the clothing and as you said the body positions yeah. and you're like what, ha, what what are we what are we as an audience picking up from their thoughts and feelings from what you're showing yeah. us. But yeah, the interiority, definitely. But it, there's also this kind of frozen quality, mm. like they're captured in a yes. moment. Yes, yeah. Like you've paused, you've paused something and we're watching Yes, Yes,
1: uh, and maybe that comes from the fact, because I'd done my degree in film and I spent a good probably 10 years making shorts in my spare time. So... Um, so I really like cinema, but I do like there's something about a mm. frozen moment in time that I'm intrigued about. Um, and so maybe that's kind of part of my film language. Um,
3: yeah, I, I love that you're saying that you sort of cast yourself yes. as these roles and that they're, yes. they're your players. It's very theatrical. And because it's life size, we're watching actors on a yes. stage and it's a tableau. You know, it's something held that's telling this yes, story at right, that yeah. moment.
1: And I did do acting classes, actually, because I wanted to understand what actors did. Um, I just wanted to understand the actor's process so that I could become a better director. Mm. So, um, what, did you, what did you learn so then, suppo- Charlene? What did you learn so about us, us actors?
3: Can... What do we do? <laughs> We're a nightmare. You know
1: what? <laughs> I did. now, I, now I, I really, gosh, I hands, hands you know, you know kind of i I really respect what you do as actors because it's not it's not easy and I did this course once where we had to um act but also direct each other and I had someone who didn't know how to direct me, and that was horrible 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 and I said that I would never do that to anybody um because i I understand now that actors don't you know you don't tell actor what to do you know, you, you you discuss the characters and you find something that, you know, the actor has to find something that they relate to within that character in order to do Ooh, the sound story like a justice. You great director, you that's serve exactly that <laughs> There's so many that, do that
3: haven't got that, Charmaine. There's so many. There's so many.
1: So I suppose in a way I'm doing the same thing because when I... Because I never have a clear, um, well, occasionally I do. I mean, with with Facing the Wind, I, there was mm. a clear story that I wanted to tell. But even a lot of the time, I have an idea of the kind of thing that I want to do. And then I have this dialogue with um, the characters in the, on in my drawings. And even when I do have a clear story, I still have to ask the characters, what is it they need? Because... You know, I can't impose um, what I feel um, or what I think should go in the work. I have to connect to my own feeling and to connect to the work in order Mm. to serve the story. So that's the process that I go through when I'm making the work.
2: I have always, with the works that we had in Margate, just as a starting point, like felt this kind of soul connection thing where where it feels quite spiritual. There's a kind of like sense of a connection to yeah. the, your ancestors and maybe people from like even hundreds of years ago. And then your connection to the next generation, like what isn't here yet, like the future, which in itself is quite, there's a kind of filmic element mm. to that because even in that work, um, which is earlier, the re- it's called The Return from 2018, where, where there's two yes. women... Um, two of you two of your players um holding a boat and one of the figures face is yes. is there's kind of like three faces in one where it's almost like they're turning their head but it could almost be like an out-of-body experience yes. or it could be like you know three different people at different it's points existential of, isn't yeah. It? yeah and i that work for me is like yes. really important and they're carrying
3: I a boat yeah. between them they're taking the weight of this kind of yeah. boat between them that hasn't got any sails yeah. and you feel like it, don't you, Russ? Yeah. It's like yeah. you feel
2: the weight of the boat. It's like, yeah. Can you me? But yet clothes. their clothes, their clothes are
3: sci-fi. They're like celestial beings right. in yeah, some yeah, ways. Yeah. There's like this kind of like py- pyramid, sort of
2: yeah.
3: like a like a uh, transparent pyramid that's around one of their mm. kind of shirts, isn't mm-hmm.
1: there? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. So, with that work, um, I had. Um, started some investigation into indigo and its usage on, on the plantations during the transatlantic slave trade. And I was inspired to make that work uh, because I saw, watched a film called Daughters of the Dust, directed by Julie Dash. I'd first seen that film when I was a film student in the mid-90s and then um, I saw that it was on Netflix and I thought, oh, I'm going to watch it again. And there was a scene that I hadn't noticed before and it was a scene where one of the characters was talking about, um, you know, working on an indigo plantation. You saw that she had blue hands and I something inside me thought, I've got to research this. So I started to undertake... A huge amount of research, and I—I um, I read some very difficult accounts because you know, um, as you do. And I, it then occurred to me that so many people died without having been mm-hmm. afforded a proper memorial. So then I thought that I needed to somehow uh, make something that commemorated that and then interestingly enough at around the same time that i was making that work um there was an art angel commission taryn simon Islington. had done um isn't great work. i went
3: to it all the whaling or yes, the funeral yeah i walked yes. around that oh, in the, the underground car park
1: shops. yes incredible yes, that was incredible wasn't it yes and so we got to meet taryn simon um and it was, yeah, so Occupation of Loss. Performance. Um, it's, it was um performance piece with all of these mourners yeah, Professional from different mourners. cultural yeah, they backgrounds. Get, they get brought in into funerals all over the world mourner. to kind
3: of mourn and wail. Yeah. And they were all there together yes. in this one space. You'd walk yes. amongst them. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. That was incredible. And I came out of that and I thought, how can I convey a sense of loss through drawing and so that is what I wanted to inject in this work that kind of feeling Uh, but at the same time I mean because that performance wasn't morbid in any way there was something deeply moving Mm -hmm. and spiritual about it and it was that essence that I wanted to try and capture in this it was haunting I mean it was haunting Um,
3: and it was eerie um, it It, it didn't feel like death was in the room with you there and it also felt fascinating like archaeological seeing all this kind of like, like field recordings being able to witness them moments yeah
1: yeah wow yes yeah it was so beautiful yeah Really, yeah. really beautiful. And I still get chills thinking about it. Because it just started, it. didn't it, out yeah. of nowhere.
3: And then it was like, so like wailing that... everywhere and everyone's doing their thing. And then suddenly it just ended. Everyone, everyone yes. ended at exactly the same time and then just all walked out. And it was like, well, this is yes. so... It was like yes. you weren't there. It was all happening somewhere else, wasn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah. And then mm. the space felt completely different. Once said gone... Mm it was a completely different space you know it was yeah it's incredible because yeah i didn't realize it was an underground uh, car park um until you know all the mourners left in and then we met the artist afterwards and then you know lights went on and i thought wow well, it's all okay. under islington green you know then i realized where i was
3: Essex Road where they meet yeah
1: yes can i just
3: yeah. take you back to you you mentioned yeah. the, the indigo so, plantation now that's something that's new to me so the color indigo mm-hmm.
1: Yes, it comes from a green plant, and the interesting thing is, there's this alchemical process um, to creating um, this indigo dye, because um, the dye itself has to be extracted. But uh, so this it's this substance called indicans, and it's transparent, and then somehow it has to um, be turned into something that can then become a dye. And, and then one, when you dip the cloth into it, it's green. And then when it's exposed to oxygen, it turns blue. So nobody knows how people from different continents around the globe discovered this technique around about the same time. And um, in India, the way they process indigo is that they make they make it into these kind of gelatin blocks. Um, But in Africa and in Japan, they have, it's almost like a fermentation process. So they kind of have um, like a huge um, pile of leaves that slowly kind of decay, almost like Mm. um, the same way you make compost. And then um, the process is then kind of, created through that kind of compost so um so yes it's it's really interesting how yeah how people discovered this and so on the plantations how they um part of the process is to use urine on it um to 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 process this dye so um yeah it's a really interesting process so that kind of alchemical process um, this kind of process of transformation, alchemy, I kind of used that idea in that figure that's kind of mm. looks like it's just turning its head. It's got several heads. Um, because, and, and then the symbols um, on her dress kind of relate to alchemy as well. Because in my research about... Whose urine indigo, is it, by the way? Is
3: it an animal's urine um, or is it human urine?
1: You know... Really? <laughs> uh human yeah i think human yeah think is that still the case as well yes if you... yes so, right uh no no it's not the case uh, they found yeah yeah they found um chemical ways of of processing um but um so this whole idea of alchemy and transformation i wanted to have that figure um, mm. that's looking mm. in different directions at the same time as being this kind of conduit this channel who's kind of between this world and the next and then the woman next to her with the, the kind yeah, of right. almost like a space age top with the pyramid kind of leaves she is someone who is kind of from the future so she's with this ancestral kind of figure so then it makes the whole world, the the whole piece, timeless because you're between the past and the present and the future and you can't really locate um, where this story is. But then inside the boat, there are kind of symbols that kind of relate to something more ancient because in my research, I discovered that um, indigo was used... Um, in ancient funerary rites. So even as far back as ancient Egypt, um, you know, people used to bury their dead in indigo cloth. Um, and there are tribes um, in Mali that used to do that, the Telem. Um, so it has this really spiritual, cosmological significance as well. So, um it's, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs.
2: and for your new show which has just opened there's this theme of kind of healing which seems to be kind of a central theme in a way and it's linked to herbalism Mm -hmm. which i guess you could also associate with alchemy because there is a sense of um kind of transformational thinking or something with with herbalism do you know what i mean there's often a belief because it's not always totally seen as um like medical in the same way that some medicines are you know, like like pills are mm-hmm. getting given by a doctor or something, That's almost, there's almost like an authority within that structural system that says this is like medicine. Yeah. But, like, herbalism is a different thing because, um, A, it's very much l- rooted to different plants and the, the meanings of all those plants, which is totally factual, but there's also it's this ancient, kind of belief within something. And the, and, yeah, exactly. And, and the power within communities and a kind of kinship between different people's beliefs, uh, b- b- beliefs in the power of, those, of, of nature,
1: essentially. Mm. and 80 percent of the world's population still rely on herbs for healing so uh you know western medicine is just a tiny little drop of you know the whole kind of um thing and so that work came about because i'd had a conversation with um Tanya Kovats earlier this year in January, uh, she was course director on, at Wimbledon. on my MA drawing course mm-hmm. and um, at Wimbledon. Um, and at the time, she was interested in um, doing uh, asking artists to do some drawing research around the Elephant and Castle area. And I started to talk to her about the fact that um, my mum used to send me to... Um, a health shop called Baldwin's on Woolworths Road. It's been there for a hundred years at least. And uh, she used to send me there to buy herbs and to buy sarsaparilla. And there's a lot of black women who send their kids there to buy stuff. So I remember, you know, kind of being a 10-year-old with this big trolley and you had to bring stuff back um, from there. And so it just brought back all these memories. And I thought, after I spoke to Tanya, I thought, maybe I should be looking at this kind of thing for... My first solo show, it makes sense to kind of uh, look at that and look at my parents' generation and how um, they kind of brought knowledge of herbs from the Caribbean here and used that to kind of help uh, uh, heal themselves. And, um, you know, that's where my research began. And so there are a couple of works, the large works... um, in that show uh, one of them in particular um, specifically speaks about my parents generation so it's got figures that overlap when I overlap figures um, it's my way of mm-hmm. talking about intergenerational um, and you know one generation passing down mm-hmm. knowledge to the next though in in one works you've got the elder who's seated and then you've got a younger woman who's standing and they're overlapping and um, so there's some elements on there. this crochet, because I grew up with my mum and, you know, her friends doing crochet just to earn extra money, um, you know. And so that uh, is kind of, there's a bit of twine that comes from that crochet that's kind of linking her to the seated figure. And, it, and then it goes around the stall and back again. So there's, and then that, the seated figure is holding, you um, some plants that I remember, like sorrel and ginger. My mum used to kind of make beverage with that. And um, so sorrel, um, uh, it's rosehip, um, but it's also called um, other things around the world because when I travelled around Egypt years ago, they drink that as well. They call it kelkode. Um And that is a very cleansing um, it's a beverage, but it's very cleansing. It's a blood purifier, but also um, it can lower blood pressure. So now I I know, I understand why I used to always suffer from low blood pressure as a child, because, you know, I was drinking a lot of this stuff. <laughs> what, did you used to, like, faint a lot? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> she used to, yeah, she used to make lots of drinks. But did you, you faint? Did you have, that like,
3: low blood pressure where you just get dizzy all the time?
1: Uh, yeah, I used to. Yeah, I used to get dizzy all the time. And so I didn't realise, and clearly my mum didn't realise that um, you know it lowers the blood pressure, but I only found out as an adult that that's what it does. Um, but yes, um, nice. but it's a really nice beverage, but it's full of antioxidants as well. Um, Especially if you've got so low blood pressure, it's, it's very good for you, but don't right. drink too much. <laughs> yeah, but this show, so this show,
3: uh, exactly. the Sea Keepers, yeah. this is this is all works <laughs> on paper. Now you work predominantly on paper why 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 is it the paper for you and you're very specific about the certain paper you've used because I've read about this residence you did and you couldn't get the certain paper or the certain uh materials that you use normally and it kind of threw you for a bit until you just succumbed and went I'm going to go with this but what paper do you use and why is paper the surface that you can tell your stories on best?
1: Mm, I love I I just I love the surface of paper. I love I love the feeling, the sensory feeling of pencil on paper. Mm. Um, There's something about that. And then um, also when I was learning to draw, um, you know, back in 2007, I'd started printmaking at that time as well. And printmakers have this obsession about paper so, um, so and I still have that such obsession. So uh, and then also recently, um, uh, I've had to use different oh. paper because the paper that I used to use they don't make it anymore. So I know. So I was quite bereft. What that, what, is know, what is the paper? What because you used? So yeah. I used to use Canson Moulin de Roy hot press, and it used to come on a roll and canson has discontinued it so i'm really upset about that and um because it was super super smooth paper and also when you put watercolor on it if you mm-hmm. made a, a mistake you could lift it quite easily so the papers that i am that i've used in a show you can't necessarily lift so easily with it but actually i've 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 fallen in love with the new papers that i'm using now
3: and what's the new paper called
1: so the me- the medium sized um works um okay. i've been using winsor newton um hmm. watercolor paper and it's a very nice paper it's it's a smooth paper but it's not it's not as smooth as i'm used to so it took a while to get used to it but i like the way it's got a little bit of a tooth and it's got almost like a crosshatch kind of grain to it and so, um, when you make marks on paper, I, I like the marks that that pencil make on that paper. It's just really, really nice. I actually met
2: someone once who who makes paper, and she'd been to Japan and learnt how to make paper there because I think in Japan there's a huge history of like paper making. And have, have you ever had have, have have you ever worked with Japanese paper? Did I talk to you about that before?
1: Yes, I love Japanese paper, and I've got some in my studio, and I do want to do stuff with it um because i have done so printmaking cool. um yeah. photo lifo onto japanese paper and it's gorgeous and so i've got some ideas that i want to do with because i've got a huge role in my studio and i do want to do something kind of printmaker-ish with it um yes when i have the time
3: how long does each drawing take you because and this show how many works are actually in this show
1: there's 14 works in the show. So two of them are life-size. And normally, uh, I normally spend a good two to three months mm. on the big, big works. Um, but with this whole body of work, I started, I started in April. And in April, I'd kind of gridded up the two big drawings. And in the mm. beginning, I was drawing and researching at the time, same time. And then I got them to a certain stage and then I thought I'd better start the medium-sized ones. Um, because Do I you sketch to get...
3: though before? Do you sketch before or do you go straight onto the paper? Uh,
1: with the big ones, I go straight straight onto the paper and I work out ideas on the paper and I make lots of notes. I write notes all over the drawings and then I carefully erase when it's finished.
3: That's really fascinating. Have so, you have you ever, have you ever so released one that has notes? You would
1: see. <laughs> have you ever released
3: a work that has notes on it that people can sort? Of know? No.
1: No, I've never released a work with the, with my notes on. No. No, never done that. Um so yeah, so so what I did was with this body of work I um I kind of started some works left it, started new ones, and then I got to a stage where I was working on all of them at the same time, so that I could finish them all at the same time, so that they could all have this relationship with Mm. each other.
3: Wow, and what I love as well is that, well I don't love it, I find it terrifying actually, is that the bigger works, the smaller works are in frames, but the bigger life-size ones, you have the paper on ball clips on nails hanging yeah. off the wall, which we had in Margate, yeah. which is yeah. just celebrating, obviously, the actual materiality of paper. So you can see the paper and it yeah. kind of rolls and, like, it goes with, you know, the heat and everything. But there's something kind of terrifying about that as a collector, as someone who is curating <laughs> the show, of, like, how do you... Do you have... do you fearful for these works out in the world, people brushing past them and, and the kind of um, Yeah, I did, actually, the, the first paper.
1: time um, I exhibited yeah my large work um the return uh, because that that was in the trinity boy wharf drawing prize exhibition in 2019 so when i was exhibiting that i was terrified because i was thinking it's not framed it's going to be traveling to all these different locations (laughs) and i was really really scared but um i had nothing to worry about because it was looked after but yeah that was terrifying for me um but now i'm i'm not So afraid because, you know, art handlers, you know, they're trained how to handle art properly and, you know, and it's okay.
2: I actually remember when the three arrived in Margate and they came um, I think two came first and then another one came later because you made it later but during the pandemic actually because the show got placed on hold which meant we got a third work but um, I remember when they arrived and they were rolled and we actually brought them out in the counter-edition studio upstairs because we have big plan chests and like areas there where we can have large bodies of paper and um, we unraveled them and I remember immediately thinking oh I get it now because the paper was actually really thick and it wasn't like the kind of paper that would crease that easily really unless you were like really responsible. and also your your clips are actually really elegant like the clips that you chose and we had to order these specific ones that you detailed and then when we installed it it was all quite relaxed actually and i was so relieved because it was like so, i couldn't sleep one night i was like so stressed Aww. about it. but the truth is it's like as long as you take care yes actually paper's kind of really resilient and it's it's a really strong um material but it made me think about you know like you were talking about in that work um the return where you have indigo watercolor and like uh graphite powder and all these different materials the one that we had in our viewing room um had daylight shining on it and it was silver wax and it made it look blue but then i realized when we photographed it it wasn't blue it was silver but the sky the reflections of the sky in margate were like reflecting off the silver wax and creating this blue color Mm. it was like a total illusion like an alchemy in its in itself yeah
1: Nice when things that. like that happen. It's really yeah, nice. It's like a little magical moment. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and why did you use silver wax, by the way?
1: Ah, yes. So um, that, that character again was referencing um, the first, uh, this character that I'd had in the first Windrush drawing. <laughs> so in that drawing, I was inspired by a silver point draw, um, drawing by Leonardo da Vinci um, called The Warrior.
0: Mm.
1: And so that armor, because uh, I actually put the, the armor on the character, because I, uh, I said I, I thought that, um, you know, my parents' generation, I saw them as warriors because they went through so much. So, the fact that that uh, I use silver wax on that is just referencing the silver points that's in the Leonardo you know, da Vinci drawing.
2: Amazing, so, yeah. and. Why Leonardo da Vinci? Is that someone that you, you look at a lot? Because I saw a da Vinci exhibition and some of the drawings were just extraordinary. Yes.
1: I love the fact that he was an inventor and he did so yes. many different things But he kind of worked out all of his ideas through drawing. It's that uh, kind of inventiveness that I really love about him. But also, um, I like to go to the British Museum, the Prince and Drawings Study Room, and... And actually look at these works and draw from them. So a lot of the time when I was on my Drawing MA, I used to go there and um, just copy these masterworks just to understand. Because the thing I like about copying other people's works is to understand how they approach drawing and Mm. just to really, um, you know, study their marks and things like that. Oh, brilliant. I
2: I always remember as a songwriter, when I was a teenager, um, Tori Amos always doing cover versions um, of other songs. And at the time, I was really like purist. And I was like, I only want to hear the song she wrote. You know, and like as a musician myself back then, I took myself really seriously. And I was like, I'm not going to do covers. But then as I got older, I began to realise it's so important to do cover versions and to like learn about the artistry of songwriting. And it's the same for art, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's like, it's actually really good to sometimes mimic or imitate or copy or, you know, um, almost do facsimiles of other artists' work Mm -hmm. because then you can throw it all away and find your own voice later.
1: Exactly. And you learn so much um, by copying other people and um, seeing their process, just examining and thinking, ah, that's how they approach drawing. Mm. And, um, you know, you learn a lot from that and there's something that you can take and inject into your own work I think it's really valuable practice to do that, just to understand um, the craft that you're engaged in. Yeah.
2: And actually, who are some of your contemporary heroes or like, do you have a peer group of people that you um, look up to or feel supported by or hang out with?
1: Uh yes, um other drawers, um Barbara Walker, Phoebe love Boswell. I <laughs> just want to say that. And Claudette for We're hopefully
2: gonna do oh Claudette, amazing. Yes. I love Claudette.
1: Yes, and uh, there's an artist who uh you know I've recently come to know his work, Robert Pruitt. His oh, work wow. is just uh you know beyond. I just love his work. I just absolutely love his work. Um he's an American. Based artist, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's yeah. a friend of
2: mine, I, I know him really well. Oh, but
1: yeah, he's love amazing. his work, my goodness, yeah. wow, yes. And uh, Toyin Oditola, who you've interviewed yes. before, yeah, um, and I'm so Odutola. pleased to Incredible. be in the same show as hers, you know, uh, in, in, in Margate. It's, yeah, she's an great. extraordinary artist and yeah. an extraordinary
2: human. Who was the artist you said after Barbara Walker before? Um,
1: Bebe Boswell. Oh, Phoebe Boswell, of
2: course. Yes. Yes. Sorry, I think I spoke over you. I didn't want to miss her out because I felt like she got a shout-out and it might not have been heard. (laughs) Phoebe Boswell, she's amazing as well.
3: Um, So um, so, so talking about the drawing and the process, when I've been watching a few videos online and obviously how meticulous this is, I really worry for your back and your (laughs) wrists. (laughs) and it makes me think about that but I know that you are very you have a lot of stamina because you are into fitness and I also read that you like to have a little dance in the studio before you start (laughs) working which I love but how do you maintain this sort of you know the positions you must get into when you're doing all these drawings you must be kind of hunched over and everything how do you maintain the studio practice yes it
1: is hard work with the life-size works um they are pinned to the wall. So I actually work, you know, so it's vertical, completely vertical. The ones that I yeah, the smaller ones I have to kind of hunch over. So I do have to every morning I kind of get up, I meditate, do yoga. Um I've got a Pilates reformer, so I'll go on that if I need a, a good stretch. So mm-hmm. so yes, it is it is hard. But yeah, it's it's tough on the hands and um I had to have um thumb surgery as well this year which meant that I couldn't draw for a month which was hard and um the thumb is still healing it still gets a bit sore because I was told it's going to take you know up to two years to completely heal um so yes it does take a toll was that from art was that an art injury no, though no. Or was that something else? <laughs> no I had this weird growth I don't know what it was but um you know and yeah had to have it removed so I don't know what that was um doctors don't seem to know either so yeah
3: on your drawing
1: hand? Are yes, I am right-handed? right-handed. It's my drawing hand. Yeah, oh, I know. No. Yeah, that's a bit it scary. Was, it was really scary. Yeah, yeah. What
3: going to say? This show that's coming up, that's on right now, that people can go and see on till the fifth yes. December, is the first time that you've used all full colour yes. because we've seen a lot of works that are graphite, are black and white, but this one is the time that you've actually introduced colour fully, and and then and gold as well is features yes. a lot.
1: So it was scary because, yeah, I was using new paper, um, using full colour. I switched pencils as well. So it was scary. I just, yeah, jumped into this unknown territory. But it's it felt right. I mean, I'd been wanting to use colour for a while, but I just didn't know how I was going to do it because my drawings are really delicate. And so it is about striking a balance between the graphite and the colour, I didn't want one to dominate the other. And it's quite easy to kind of have colour that's too strong for my my drawing. So I suppose over a two-year period, I had been kind of dipping my toe in using colour and kind of doing little experiments, but was never happy with it. But I think what forced me, um, I knew I, I had to engage in colour because you can't speak about plants and not use colour, <laughs> um, right. I, I felt, anyway. So... Um, so I think that the fact that I was working towards this solo show, it really got me to focus my mind. And it really got me to just, um, in the beginning, just experiment and play. And I just found the right balance. And then the paper that I was using, this new paper, um, I quite liked the way um, it interacted with the watercolour as well. Because mm-hmm. all the different papers, it kind of receives the colour differently so i think that perhaps when i'd experimented before um the paper that i was using and the way i wanted to interact with it and the drawing and the watercolour wasn't quite the right mix but somehow it came together in this work so yeah
2: I I really like the references in in this particular body of work in the new show to kind of like Afrofuturism as well and also Mm -hmm. kind of like ancient Egypt as well as ancient African culture like there seems to be a myriad of of influences and, and and references which are so rich but also so unique to your work I feel like it's very much your kind of perspective and interest
1: Yes. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so the Afrofuturist elements is these uh, six plant warrior women. Yeah. And so um, plant warrior women. Yes, they are six women, plant warriors, and they came out of um, the idea that plants have their own level of spiritual development. Oh, wow, Yeah. And that, uh, just like humans. So, I wanted to then explore what each of these plants symbolically could embody in human form. Mm. And I looked at plants that my parents' generation would have used. So, um, it's aloe, syracy, sage... caster, ginger, and burdock. Mm -hmm. So with all of these plants, I did extensive research on um, what planetary system they kind of um, belong to, because each plant is um, connected to different planets. Um, and I looked at um, plant symbolism and even tarot because there is. Uh, I found this tarot deck that relates to different herbs and plants I as well. That. So all of that symbolism I kind of weaved into these warrior women, and I and the way they're sat as well. Um, I kind of mirrored. Um, the way the elders in the life-size drawings were sitting Mm. as well. Because if you look at a lot of um, photography from my parents' generation, a lot of them had studio photographs taken and they were very formal. Mm. There's this particular way that um, a lot of black women used to sit, you know, with their legs crossed at the ankle and, you know, the hand kind of rested in the lap. So I kind of mirrored that in um, all of the plant warriors as well, and gave them this very regal pose. And so, and through the titles, I—it's almost like each of the titles are like a message that these plant warriors want to give to the viewer. That's so really, wow! So that's how, how do, I approached it.
3: How How do you know when a work is finished?
1: When it doesn't speak to me anymore. So this is yeah. the conversation
3: you're having with your characters. Yeah. So, so yeah. what you're having this dialogue you're having. So when there's like what a silence. When there's a get... silence,
1: that's it. I know it's done. Yeah.
3: Wow. Yeah. And then how do you feel about them going out into the world now? You're getting collectors, and Ooh. I know that there's been museums looking at the work now, and.
1: Yes, um, I do get sad, as particularly with the big ones because they take so long to make. So um, yeah, but thankfully. Um, you know, some of them have gone into museums, so I can go and visit them. Um, but yes, it's, it's, you know, it's it's always nice when someone wants to buy your work anyway. So um, it's a pleasure that I can give something out to the world to... someone who wants to collect it I mean it's a nice thing It's wonderful
2: I I also I'm really happy your work is going into museums because I think your work more than anybody's like it looks great in photographs but when you see it in real life it's just got Um, a whole other dimension and it's so extraordinary just just like the trace of you even like you know the all those intense marks you know that you on those large works that you spent months on they're kind of like mm. I don't know. It's just this energy force on the paper, which is on the ba- just next level. I love it so much. Can you draw
3: your? Can you draw yourself without needing a mirror now or needing photographs? Do you know? Because you because you've drawn yourself <laughs> so often idea. now.
1: Yes, but I still I still approach the drawing as if. I'm drawing a new person. Because if you notice in my drawings, even though they all look like me, they all look complete. They all look different. Mm. So because if you look at the plant warriors, I what I did, I did one drawing and then I traced and then transferred that image to the other um, sheets of paper. So the eye line and everything would be exactly the same. Mm. But if you look at each of the plant warriors, they all look different. So every time I approach a drawing, I approach it as if I'm looking at that person for the same time. And every time I look at reference images, I notice something else anyway, mm-hmm. and I'm asking different questions on different days. I might be um, thinking, well, well, how is the light falling You know, on that cheekbone and kind of really examine that bit of the anatomy? And then, so that kind of makes a difference to that work. Whereas with the other one, I might be focused more on the eyes or the position. Sometimes I slightly move the eyes as well because when I'm gridding up, um, you know, once the drawing's on the paper, I then think, does it work as a drawing? Because it may have looked okay in the photograph, but does it work as. as a drawing. God. So we ask every yep. guest two questions.
2: The first is, if you could do an art heist and take home any artwork or building or anything you'd like from around the world, um, what
1: would it be and why? Anything by Klimt from his gold period. <sighs> wow. Because of wow. the symbolism. Just a, a huge fan, huge, huge fan so it's not yes. just ancient Egypt I've never seen any of his work <laughs> yeah it's Klimt <laughs> and I've never seen any of his work up close I'd love to that's that's yeah that's on my bucket list to go and, yeah because
3: yeah, this gold is appearing in, in this work now like the, the, the backgrounds behind them are, f- are fully gold on <laughs> some of them I'm glad
2: we asked that question yeah. now I hadn't really thought about Klimt it makes total sense <laughs> yeah you need to get to Vienna yeah. <laughs> oh my god you should do a show at Succession that would be so cool
1: Yes, yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: Do you know what I love about the location of where your show is on right now is it's right near the Natural History Museum and the V&A. So this whole kind of history and plants and archaeology and pyramid, everything that is kind of playing into the location where you're shown. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, The other question (laughs) we ask is, what is your favourite colour?
1: I'd have to say indigo. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I love love that colour because when you kind of dilute it. You get so many different blues from that one indigo. It's it's just just magical. It's just magical. There's something about it. And I think it's a colour that everybody loves because that's the population... Sorry, that's the popularity of blue jeans, you know, that indigo colour. There's something about that colour that people connect to.
3: And do you always... When you see it or, or work with it, consider the history and maybe the problematic past of that colour, but also the history of that must be so embedded in that material for you when you choose to use it. Mm,
1: yes, um, because when I use it now, I tend to kind of think about the cosmological um kind of significance of it. So yes, because it it appears in couple of couple of the works that's in my show at the moment. So yes. I suppose yes, unconsciously I am kind of thinking it um thinking about those things. Uh yes. Yes.
3: Cool. What what is the best advice that you've ever received when it comes to your art?
1: Mmm well, uh, best advice actually was when I was on my foundation course because I came from a graphic design background. So I was struggling with responding to um, ideas instead of answering a brief. So, (laughs) Because I was so used to answering a brief, I was really struggling.
3: Well, you were a shoe designer, weren't you, at one point? I was,
1: yeah, I was as well. (laughs) Yeah, I've had many lives. So, on this course, I was lucky enough to have a tutor who also came from a graphic design background, and he said to approach the work as if it's a poem. And he said, you know, that it's almost like if you take apart the idea um completely you know you're just trying to find that essence of what you're trying to say because with poetry you don't actually explicitly say that i am saying x y and z you kind of hint at what you're saying it's that kind of poetic Mm. response and um So that's the way I've approached the work. And I think that's why a lot of the work that I make is quite ambiguous, because I know that I don't have to be explicit in what I'm saying. I can just layer things, I can layer meanings. So that was a really, really good piece of advice to approach it like that. Because I think sometimes my brain, the kind of design brain, does kick in sometimes when I'm in the studio. And I think, no, right, just rip it apart rip apart that whole concept and see what's left and then just start with that it's like starting with a little seed and just you know seeing how it grows
3: i love that yeah that's amazing the poem side of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess I guess some of your works or a lot of your work are kind of embedded with your own secrets, your mm-hmm. own sort of little stories that you've put in there that you don't need people to know, but they're there for you.
1: Exactly. And this is the thing that I needed to get my head around, because as a designer, you're supposed to spell everything out so that everybody understands so There's no ambiguity. And, you know, it's like there. <laughs> and, and, you know, having worked in advertising, you, you have to say it several times over as well. And so now I know that I can just be complete opposite and it doesn't have to kind of make sense in a linear way, but it can just hint at things. And then it adds richness and people can then bring their own kind of perspective to the work as well. Um, And I'm always interested in what other people um, have to say about the work because they always see things that I don't. Um, And that's really interesting, too.
3: Well, we hope as many people as possible go and see this show, The Seed Keepers, which is on Cromwell Place, a Tuani Contemporary, and more and more people discover your work and... Project themselves onto it and lean into it and uh, learn more and discover you more because you're wonderful. And I I saw your work at Tuani before you was in a a two person show with uh, Andrew Pierre Hart that was called Tunes of the Blues. And I stumbled across that gallery. I hadn't really known gallery before, walked in, I was like, Who is this? This work is incredible. And then when the group show came up, I said, Charmaine's (laughs) got to be in this show. Uh I was like, It was an an instant like pang of this is really really special
1: oh thank you thank you very much it's also
2: been such a joy no just worries. to get to know you on a friend level like i loved our time in margate when you came up the second time i think you came like two or three times during the show it's yes. such yeah. a laugh mm. i did and tracy yes. got to meet you as well and she yeah. loved you and i don't know it's been so much yeah. fun
3: you're going to start to get recognised. The more people know your word, they're going to be like, uh, I recognise you. <laughs> they're going to get starstruck around are. you. We are. And I, I haven't seen the show in London yes. yet. but I'm
2: coming up next week just especially to see it because I cannot wait to be there. Um,
1: oh, let me know when you're coming. I'll, I'll be there as well. Cool. I can talk you as well. All right. Yes. Well, thank you for
2: listening, awesome. everyone. For images Great. of everything we've spoken about today, you can go to TalkArt, at TalkArt on Instagram. And Charmaine, are you on Instagram?
1: Uh, Yes, I am, at Ms
2: Watkins. We will link to you as well. And then, um, do you have your own website as well? I thought
1: you did. Yes, I do, Charmaine Watkins. And then you can go
2: to Tawani Contemporary. We'll also link to them, who are an amazing gallery in London, very supportive, bringing um, lots of new artists to all of our attention. So big respect to them as well. We actually met uh, one of the women from Tawani at Donatella Versace's party, didn't we, Ras?
0: I love any opportunity
2: to mention that we We met on (laughs) teller. Thanks for listening. We'll be back very soon. Thanks, everyone.
3: (laughs) Cheers, Charmaine.
2: Thank you very much.